We are starting off a study in the book of Job. A couple of sort of general remarks before we get in. The first part of the book is organized. First off, you've got the background, which we'll go through tonight. Then Job has got three friends that show up as he's suffering. And each one of those three friends accuses him of deserving everything he's got. Various different reasons, but the thing is, you deserve what's happening and you need to get down on your knees and confess to God and God will take it away from you. Job then refutes each of these and then we finally get Elihu who does a speech and then God speaks to Job. The timing of the book, nobody knows. It's wisdom literature. It was set certainly before the Torah. I've seen speculation that it was set in the time of Abraham just because of the way Job does sacrifices and so forth. There's no mention of the tabernacle, there's no mention of any of that kind of stuff, so it's set in a time before the Torah. Job is a wealthy and a wise man, and his friends are wealthy men. And that's important to the story, because if Job was a bum and his friends were drug addicts, then nothing that got written down here would be of any import to anybody. This is written in the style of Eastern wisdom literature. And Eastern wisdom literature has got sort of a formula. It's what's called a mashal. And typically a mashal is a couplet, often a triplet, and it's designed to evoke thought and discussion. The first part of it sets the subject, the second part of it gives commentary on the subject and the commentary is such that it's supposed to engender discussion and thought as opposed to being definitive. So lots of Job reads very much like Proverbs and in fact you'll find stuff in Job that you will also find in Proverbs. So the fact that Job is wealthy and well-known and his friends are wealthy and well-known is important to the story because it was just some random guy that had a terrible thing happen to him and he wasn't well known and didn't know anything, didn't have any wisdom, the book could never get written down. So the fact that he's a prominent man is important. As you read the accusations of his friends, a lot of them read like what you will find in uh, Fire and Brimstone Church. For example, man is of no worth whatsoever in the face of God. You've got no standing to stand up and demand justice because if you demand justice, you're going to be a crispy critter instantly. And the only thing that's going to save you is mercy of God. You've all heard that kind of preaching. The thing I find interesting about this is you get a lot of that kind of preaching from the friends and then Job refutes it. And at the end of the day, God then goes back and validates Job's position as opposed to his friend's position. And I find that really instructive as I'm listening to fire and brimstone preachers. And don't get me wrong, as you read this, everything that his friends say, oh yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, but it isn't right. And so a lot of people interpret the Bible not directly from Job's friends, 
but they interpret the Bible in that spirit. And one of the things that Job is, is a corrective to that perspective. The pattern I hope to follow is tonight I intend, God willing, to get through about the first three chapters. That sets everything up and gets you to the first of his friend's speeches. So it's all background, Job's initial complaint, you know, he's lamenting the day he was born and that kind of thing. There's a lot of poetic language in here. There's a lot of Eastern wisdom literature. If you want to, we can go down and crunch through discussions of it, but I am sort of hoping to get each time three chapters, which is one of his friend's accusations and then two chapters of Job's response. Not wedded to that, I'm just saying that's the approach I'm going to take, but if you guys want to stop and go into detail on stuff, I'm okay with that, but I'm not planning to do that initially. I am going to take the perspective that the things that Job says are sound theology, the things his friends say are not sound theology. And so what you have is a dialogue where the friend says something that's not correct, and then Job comes in and refutes it. Now, understand that God, at the end of the day, is going to jerk Job up short. And that's okay. Everybody deserved to be jerked up short. But he really goes after the three friends. That's why I'm sort of at least initially going to adopt that format. The friend's accusation, and then essentially two chapters of Job's refutation. And what I really want to talk about is the theology there, as opposed to the poetry there. So let's start. So I'm in Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Nobody knows precisely where Uz is. Given that one of his friends comes from Canaan, another one is a descendant of Abraham and Keturah, this describes him as being in the East, so he could be anywhere from what is now Jordan all the way up toward Haran, probably not as far over as Shinar, Babylon, because we'll have Chaldeans that, that are going to be raiding him, but he's close enough to be raided by Chaldeans and Sabaeans. And Sabaeans, by the way, are up in the area around the Caspian Sea, I believe. The Chaldeans, of course, are from what is now Iran, the area around Babylon. So anyway, nobody's sure exactly where Uz is, but that you sort of get the idea that he's not in the land of Israel proper, He's east of there somewhere. Could be north and east. Could be north of Damascus. Verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate or sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job says, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So this idea of a period of feasting, I see this as he's got a close family. They take turns hosting the feast. I don't get the impression that they feast every day. I get the impression that the feasts are 
scheduled and periodic, but I don't know what they are. And back to verse 5 for just a second. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, is my translation. Also in the Tanakh it says, tell them to sanctify themselves or purify. The word is kadosh underneath. And the idea is, I am going to sacrifice on your behalf, sanctify yourself so the sacrifice will be effective. And the idea that Job is personally doing all these sacrifices is an indicator that we're not talking about Torah times. Because you remember in the Torah, the idea was they have to come to wherever the tabernacle was to do their sacrifices. In verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, which you see also in the book of Genesis, Genesis, I believe, 6. So there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Several things here. Nobody knows when Satan gets expelled from heaven. We know that by Revelation 12, he is expelled. So I'm in Revelation 12, 7. Now the war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In the sequence in Revelation, that is after the seventh trumpet. Now, in Revelation, you've got three sets of seven. You've got seals, trumpets, and bowls, and there's an interlude between each of the three sets of seven. Those interludes are not sequential necessarily. Some of them are background and some of them are historical. So it isn't at all clear from this what the timing is of the expulsion of Satan from heaven. At the time of Job, however, he had not been expelled from heaven. So between Job and whatever the time period in Revelation 12 is, Satan gets expelled. Let's pick it up in 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? This is the crux of the whole book. Satan is being challenged by God. Job is not involved in this conversation. I am told, but I can't find it, that there's a theatrical device in some theater traditions where you have two stages. You have an upper stage and a lower stage. And the audience can see both the upper and the lower stage, but players in the lower stage can't see the upper stage. The players in the upper stage can see the lower stage, and the audience can see both stages. So what you have is you have stuff that goes on in the upper stage that the lower stage is not aware of, but it affects the action, and they don't understand why. An example I've been told is in the upper stage, one being whispers something to the other, who then whispers to one of the actors, and something happens on stage, but the, the guy that it happens to has no idea why, like it comes out of the blue. That's what's going on here. So we're let into the action in heaven. Job is not privy to this. He doesn't see this, but we do. And the thing that is going on here is God is challenging Satan. And what God is doing is God has so much confidence in Job 
that God is resting his own reputation on the character of Job. So God says, have you considered my servant Job? Upright, nobody like him on earth. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There's sort of two things here. First off, Satan shows up in the court, and God just sort of reaches out and sticks his finger in his eye. Just totally unprovoked. Satan is minding his own business, not doing anything to anybody as far as we know. He's just directing the choir or whatever he does in heaven. And God just sort of reaches out and tweaks him. And furthermore, God then says, what we're going to do is we're going to make a bet. And I'm betting that my servant Job is not going to buckle. You're betting that he will. So God has staked his own reputation on the character of Job. And Job has no idea what's going on. Now, I will tell you, that says a great deal about Job, that God is willing to stake his reputation on Job's character. Now, Satan is saying two things here. And the first thing he's saying is, the only reason Job is behaving well is because you're protecting him and his life is going really well. There's no adversity in his life, so as soon as there's some adversity, his character is going to change. But the other thing that Satan is saying is, the only reason Job loves you is because of what you give him. What he's saying there is, you, God, are not worthy of love on your own. The only way you can get the love of men is by giving them stuff. So it's a canard on the character of Job, which is to say when Job gets some adversity, he'll fold up like a $2 suitcase. The other one is a canard on the character of God himself. And both of those things are in play. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their older brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. So we've got hands out in the field, they're plowing and, and you know, normal agricultural stuff going on. A band of Sabaean raiders falls on them, takes the oxen, kills all the servants. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So you have a lightning storm that killed everybody out in the field. There's a movie that I really enjoyed. It was made in Tibet, and it's about Genghis Khan. The scenes in Tibet look like Wyoming. Miles and miles and miles and miles and nothing, no trees, nothing at all. And one of the things that was said in the movie is the only thing that the Mongols fear is lightning. Because if you're up on a horse, you're the highest thing there. So anyway, fire from heaven, lightning, I'm assuming, came and slaughtered all the sheep and the shepherds. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldean formed three groups 
and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. So everything at this point has been taken away from Job. So now we've lost all of our camels and all the servants who were tending the camels. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and fell upon the young people. They are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, I got a small quibble with Job here. The Lord didn't take away. Satan took away. The Lord gave, I think that one's good, but the disaster was not God's direct doing. It was done by the agent of Satan. But Job doesn't know that. He has no idea what's going on. But what I'm saying is, the enemy is the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. One of the things that Brian says that I always kind of liked is Satan is a company man. In other words, Satan isn't really independent. He has got a function. And it's a function that God has given him. He's the prosecutor. Uh, in the uh, Tanakh, it's translated as the adversary. And he's necessary for what God is doing. Satan is the enemy. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. God doesn't do that. And Yeshua, I mean, he eventually will, but not his own. He'll come and destroy his enemies when he comes back. So it is, in fact, the case that God is perfectly capable of destroying. But the adversities that come in life, other places in Scripture, indicates that it's the adversary that does that. There's another thing I want to talk about in the same vein, and we can continue that when we get there. Chapter 2. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So this is like a staff meeting. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, read the first part of that, and God's the one that picked this fight. you got to assume that God knows the character of Satan. You also have to assume that God knows the character of Job. So when God provokes Satan, I think he knows what the reaction is going to be. The idea here that, gee, you just sort of came in and stirred up trouble isn't quite correct, at least not according to the text. Verse 4, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Now, let's stop for a second. What's being said here? Satan has got essentially a humanist view of people. Satan would be a good liberal today. In fact, I think many liberals are, in fact, the tools of Satan. No, I'm, I'm very serious. I'm not, not being flipped. 
Because what he says is the only thing that ultimately motivates people is stuff and their body. So he's saying if you take away the stuff and the body, then this man will fold up and curse you to your face. What God is saying is no. There is more to humanity than simply stuff and their physical body. There's a spiritual component and a character component to humanity that transcends and rises above mere stuff and the physical body. That's the argument that's being set up here. If you look at modern liberalism, they are focused on stuff and the body. Their vision doesn't go much beyond that. So in this sense, what this book is, is a refutation of liberalism. There is, in fact, more to humanity than simply stuff in your physical body. That's what's being set up here. Now, as we get on here, Job is going to whine and he's going to just carry on and he's just going to make a pitiful mess of himself. But he's not going to break. And from that I take that when stuff goes bad in your life, it's okay to whine. Because Job does. So, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Have we received good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. I mean, they have gone from being Mr. and Mrs. John Kerry Hines to nothing. It doesn't say how much time has passed, at least in this translation, but the idea that she would have given up hope is certainly very possible. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this trouble that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar, the Naamathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. At this point, they have done wonderfully. It's going to go downhill from here, but at this point, they have done very well. So now to chapter 3. After this, so we're eight days out now. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that they said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide the trouble from my eyes. He's unhappy that he was born. 
because she didn't figure that out. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, there the weary are at rest, there the prisoners are at ease together, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and great are there, the slave is free from his master. So what he's saying is, at the end of everything, everybody's dead. So he's talking about kings and counselors and princes and all those people who have lived on the earth are now dead. And they're all in the grave together. And his lament is, I really wished I could have skipped this part of my life and just gone to the place that I am going eventually anyway. And there everybody is equal. You can't take it with you, is what he's saying. So. What I really wish is that I had been stillborn or had died at birth and could have skipped all of this trouble that I have now had and simply gone to my rest where I will be with kings and princes and counselors and all that kind of stuff. Everybody else is going to be dead too and we're all there. That's the message. Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is where we're going to pick up the conversation again. You will find preachers who will say that the reason all this happened to Job was because of fear. You will hear that preached. I don't agree with that. You may agree with it or not, as you choose. What preachers will do with that is I say, well, Job was really living in fear instead of faith. And because he was living in fear, that opened him up to Satan's tender ministrations. Now, the point I will make is fear and faith are twins. They are flip sides of the same coin. And the mechanism in you that brings things to pass, that brings things out of the spiritual and into the physical, is either fear or faith. It's the same mechanism in you. And fear and faith, one is simply the negative of the other. So God tells you to operate in faith, which is to say communicate with him, have faith for the things that you want in this life, their faith will be the substance of things hoped for. Your faith will take the things out of the spirit and make them substantive, and they will flow into the world because of your faith. Fear does exactly the same thing, except it's negative instead of positive. So the idea that if you are afraid of something, and especially if you voice that fear, what you are doing is you are acting like a magnet for the thing that you fear. That's a true thing. Just like if you are standing in faith for something and you voice that faith, you become a magnet for the thing that you are being faithful for. That's why, for example, when people come in and ask for prayer, I always speak the things that we are hoping to have happen. 
you speak them out because your words have power and your words are a mechanism for bringing things out of the spiritual and into the physical. That works for positive things. It also works for negative things. Positive things, we call it faith. Negative things, we call it fear. And I'll put words in his mouth. I have got all this bounty and blessing, and I'm just wondering, is something going to happen to it? Now, that's why he sacrifices for his children, in case they've done something wrong. He is very much attuned to how much blessing he has had and he is very much attuned to the possibility that it could all be taken from him. That part is true, absolutely correct. And here he's saying that the thing that I feared is come to pass. He has clearly had fear in his life. What it doesn't say anything about is whether he voiced those fears. Now, everybody has fears. God gave you the mechanism of fears, one of the mechanisms that you have. What's important is not that you are afraid of things or you have fear in your life is that you voice those fears because stuff goes through your mind all the time and if you don't ever give it voice you don't ever give it substance and it's the same thing with faith if you don't ever give it voice you don't ever give it substance so as you're going through life you're trying never to be afraid you're wasting your time because everybody from time to time is afraid of stuff perfectly normal what you don't want to do is you don't want to give that fear power. I am not one who is in agreement with preachers who preach that Job brought all this on himself. And I see that, by the way, as an extension and continuation of the false theology that his three friends are going to bring up. Because his three friends are going to go and make his life much worse because they're going to say, you deserve all that. And what a preacher who says, well, the only reason this came upon him, he opened himself up to it because of his fear, they are doing the same thing that his three friends are doing. It's all your fault, Job. They're saying you're wicked. The preacher is saying you're afraid. But they're both saying this is all your fault. I do not agree with that. So we have got as far as I hoped to get tonight. Next time we'll pick up Eliphaz and his comment and then we'll take Job's answer to Eliphaz and we'll talk about the theology of that and so I hope as I say to get one of those units a week please consider becoming a sponsor please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor thank you